The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California legislature. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, we are very thrilled to be able to tell you about some broadband communication privacy, and that's something we haven't talked a great deal about. So this is really exciting for us, and we have a wonderful guest coming to us from San Francisco. She is an expert in this area. Let me tell you about Anita Taff-Rice, who is the founder of ICOMLAW, and that's spelled I-C-O-M-M-L-A-W, a San Francisco Bay Area law firm which specializes in the technology uh, and all sorts of issues of technology in the telecommunication industries. She has more than 20 years of experience as both an attorney and a journalist. Anita's practice includes domestic and international technology, privacy, and public policy, intellectual property, and mobile content issues. She consults clients on corporate formation, certification, regulatory compliance, content distribution, media strategies, and business development. And she also litigates those issues of high-tech issues and state and federal courts. And she also provides investigative proceeding, involves herself and helps clients with investigative proceedings at the state and federal regulatory commissions. That would be things like the Federal Trade Commission or um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, etc. Anita's clients include high-tech startups in technology. She's right in the right place in the Bay Area and in the telecommunications fields. In addition to her law practice, Anita is a writer and a speaker on technology issues. So you can find out more at icomlaw.com and that is that's spelled I C O M M O N L A W dot com. So thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you, Anita. Thank you, Mari. Okay, so first of all I have to ask you this question. How did you become such a techie? Well, I guess it's a bit of an accident. Um, I lived in Austin, Texas when I went to undergraduate, and I, I have an undergraduate degree in journalism, and at that time really became interested in technology issues and uh, ended up working for a publication that covered, uh, at that point we called it local area networking, but data communications uh, issues. 
And from there, really, it just sort of blossomed. I eventually got a job in Washington, D.C., and uh, became a bureau chief, also covering technology issues. So it's just been a fascinating 20 years, honestly. There's been an awful lot of change, and um, especially in the telecommunications area, with the deregulation of the Bell system and it being broken up, that really opened the way for a lot of opportunity and a lot of entrepreneurism. And honestly, I think what you see in Silicon Valley today is in large part due to the fact that we got rid of the telephone monopoly, opened up that infrastructure so that entrepreneurs could use that to provide new and innovative services. Right. And it encouraged them to constantly do better than the next company. So they, they had to be creative. Exciting way to get started through journalism. Just, you know, when you have to interview people who are experts, you become an expert yourself, right? <laughs> Actually, you know, that's, it's a good point, because I, I recall when I was a journalist, I really had to go and ask for information with my hat out or my hand out. You know, it was always, please help me out. And then I, I remember it was very interesting once I became a lawyer and I had discovery rights and could demand information from people. And I know a lot of my colleagues thought I was crazy because I actually enjoy going into that room and digging through the 12 banker's boxes of documents because, <laughs> you know, there's never been a time when I didn't find the diamond ring. It just often happened at 1.30 in the morning, but <laughs> I did usually find something in there that would be incredibly useful. Right, right. So let's talk about some special concerns about personal information that's collected by broadband communications. There are some special issues, right, as opposed to the information that's collected by online or retail merchants, right? There is, and and a lot of it is just because our daily activities now revolve around uh, using the Internet. And so there's a much more comprehensive set of data that's available than if you went to a single merchant and used a credit card, for example. Um, Many, many purchases, as you know, are made through the Internet. So there's that sort of transactional data. Uh, There's also information that can be collected on uh, search patterns. If you're going to a website and searching cancer, for example, that might indicate that your family member has cancer. Uh, So it gives insight into sort of your daily activities. And then because broadband is mobile now, uh, a lot of devices do have broadband capabilities, the problem is that you are able to track a person's location, which is certainly something that was never uh, available to other merchants in the past. Uh, and then, you know, the the bigger issue now, I think, is that almost everything has become connected or will be connected. And by everything, I mean your, your dishwasher, your washing machine, uh, the, the kind of uh, personal servants or personal assistants that they have now that you speak to it and it is able to go off and, and look up something for you or complete a transaction. And even into children's toys. Uh, there's some very interesting cases where uh, almost anything that has a microphone in it or a Bluetooth connection can actually be used to monitor and collect data. So in those instances, it would actually be the content of conversations and not just the sort of peripheral data that might be generated like a credit card transaction would give you. Right, right. I'm thinking even like medical uh devices that are you know, Fitbit or or something that's injected in you to give you to keep your blood level at a certain level or something like that. There's so many things that I think people are not really aware of, right? I mean, most consumers don't have a clue. They're so excited about using that technology that they 
really aren't aware of some of the possible privacy dangers. Maybe maybe you could talk to that a little bit. Sure. I think one of my uh, favorite stories, and it's unfortunately um, kind of scary at the same time, uh, earlier this year there was a, a doll called My Friend Kayla. And uh, apparently My Friend Kayla has a microphone in it and a Bluetooth connection so that the child could actually sort of appear to be speaking to the doll and the doll could appear to speak back. The problem was that it came to light that the, the voice communications that were going into this doll were actually being collected and being sent to, and I don't know the name of the company, but a voice recognition company here in the United States. Mm. It's not clear what those communications, you know, how they were analyzing or why they were analyzing them. But needless to say, I think most people would be quite disturbed to know that a child's toy could be used to monitor not only the child's conversations, obviously, but any adult in the room could be picked up on that same microphone. And then it's scary about how they might be able to replicate that voice and, you know, maybe call a, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of all these horrible, devious things that they could do is, you know, um, kidnap the kid and then have the kid have that, um, that voice say things to the parents. You know what I mean? I mean, it's pretty scary what what can be done when you're captivating that, uh, capturing that voice, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, earlier this year, there was also the revelation that uh, apparently the CIA has developed a technique where they can actually hack into television sets. A lot of television sets now have microphones because you can speak to it to change the channels and so forth. Right, right. It's called Weeping Angel. That program actually had a name to it. And they were able to make the television appear to be in the off mode. It actually was not in the off mode. And the microphone was activated, and they were able to capture everything going on in the room on that microphone. And that's frightening enough to think that it might be in your living room where you're talking about dinner that evening or going to a movie. But if you think about it, an awful lot of businesses have televisions in them now, including law firms. And the problem is that you really don't know who is doing the surveillance, why they're getting that information, what they intend to do with it. Um, So, again, these are very innocuous devices that we have in our homes and we use in our everyday life that you just wouldn't think about having any kind of capacity to, uh, you know, surveil you or to collect your information, and then you don't know what happens to that information. Now you scared the heck out of me. We have these new, um, we upgraded our Cox communication, so we've got these remotes now, and I don't have to, in the middle of the night or, you know, if it's, it's dark, I can't see what what it says, I can go, I can push the button and it says listening. And then I can say HBO, and it'll go to HBO, or I can go to music choice. And I love that part. But now you're having me get worried about, okay, as I'm talking, what else might they be listening to? Right? Yeah, absolutely. And in the (laughs) instance of Weeping Angel, it seemed to have been isolated to Samsung televisions, but there's no reason to think that that same capability couldn't be accessed for, as I said, anything that's got a microphone on it. Uh, By and large, I think it's possible for someone to um, get onto there and be able to listen to what you're doing. Oh, my goodness. So what should you do? Unplug your TV <laughs> in your bedroom or whatever, or at the office? You're going to have to just unplug it? Oh, my goodness. It's, uh, 
Yeah, I think the challenge is we we find out about all these things, but we don't always have an answer on how to protect ourselves, which we're going to talk a little bit about later. Um, so what kinds of examples you can give us that is really collected um, on purpose by the broadband communication industry that that um, that people aren't thinking about? What kind of stuff is collected that they have the right to collect or that they don't have the right to collect? Well, I, I'm going to put broadband in just kind of a large category here. By that, I mean cable companies because the, the, the wire over which they provide services to your home or to your business uh, is a broadband connection. Right. Uh, it would also be Internet service providers, um, and Comcast is an example of that, as well as being a cable company. So basically, when I say broadband, I'm referring to any large capacity, um, generally wired, so it would be fiber or copper cable that would come into a home or a business, and that is the way that you are able to access the Internet and, and in the world at large. So the, the companies that provide those services right now are definitely allowed to capture information about your usage patterns, um, how, how many megabits that you're using, for example, you right. know, because they do need some of that information legitimately to do load balancing on their networks, to predict you know, high peak times, and to figure out if they need to build more network facilities. So there are certainly completely legitimate reasons why these carriers could and should be allowed to collect uh, data. The and, problem, and how they charge you as well, you know, because if you're going over your usage, they can charge you more, et cetera, right? I mean, so there are some billing issues as well, right? Yes, that's absolutely true. Now, I mean, some people will tell you that they don't think uh, these companies should be allowed to either throttle, meaning slow down your speeds, or to charge you more for additional usage. Uh, without telling you that. Right. And in, in the early stages, they did not tell you that. They just simply did it. And you noticed suddenly that your performance was very poor, but you didn't know why. Right. And that really raises a, what, to me, is kind of the preeminent thing that we should be thinking about in these rules, if there are going to be rules to restrict the way that companies can collect and use data. They should be transparent. So I, I probably and you, Mari, are probably more concerned about privacy than maybe your average person. But even those who are not especially concerned about privacy, I think, are entitled to know that their data are being collected, and the, the ways in which they might be used, and how long they keep that data. I mean, it's very interesting. I get calls from potential clients pretty frequently saying, you know, I tried to find a text that was sent to me on my mobile phone, and I called my mobile phone provider, and they are not willing to give me that information. Hmm. And they're stunned by that because, it, after all, it's their information. It's their right. text message. Right. And if you speak to these companies, whether it's mobile providers or whether it's landline providers like AT&T or Verizon, they're very secretive about how long they keep data, where they keep the data, meaning where are they storing the data physically. And that bothers me a lot, that that's really my data. They collected it only because I'm their telephone customer, and yet I have no real control or insight into what they plan to do with that data or how I could access it later if I needed it for some reason. Right. So, Anita, how does that work in litigation? Like, I would imagine that if you wanted to subpoena records, and let's say the CEO was communicating um, by text instead of email or, or snail mail uh, with various members of the, that was their uh, mode of operation to talk about issues. 
So how would that work? I mean, would you be able to subpoena those records or how? Yes, you definitely can uh, subpoena the records. And I am told informally that most of the communications providers capture and keep data for 18 months to two years. And that's partly for billing validation purposes. As you point out, they have to be able to say, I charged you this amount because you used this amount of data or you made these long-distance calls or whatever. Uh, so the data it tends to be around for 18 months to two years, and you are able to go through a subpoena process to get those. But, but you do have to have a subpoena. They will not provide the information mm -hmm. voluntarily, even to the customer, typically. Yeah, see, that's, that's the part that seems that, that, it, that it is not transparent, it is not fair. If I want to get my own texts, I would think that I should be able to get them. So that's that's interesting. Are there any proposals um, in legislation to, to make that transparent for users or no? Uh, I've really not heard of any legislation that would deal with um, being entitled to know, you know where the data is stored or how long it's stored or that sort of thing. I think the legislatures have their hands full with more pressing issues, which is cybersecurity and hacking incidents and things of that sort, so that you know these kinds of issues just fall to the bottom of the list. And the carriers, you know, will go in and lobby and say, oh, but we protect it and we're very conscientious, but they don't ever provide specifics. <laughs> right. So it's really sort of a, a trust me, everything's just fine. Uh, but again, really no transparency. Hmm. What kinds of rules should be enacted to prevent the, the corporations from using customer information for their commercial purposes? Well, I think the number one thing is transparency, that every vendor with whom you deal, where you're giving up information, even unknowingly perhaps, um, should have some kind of a disclosure form that tells you, you know, if you go and surf the Internet, if you go do research, if you download movies, um, here's how we're going to treat that data. We're going to collect it. We're going to keep it for so many months or years. It will be stored in a facility here in the United States. Um, that's a very important uh, thing because sometimes if data is stored offshore, it's even more difficult and murky to be able to get any control over that data. Right. And you don't know about security. It may not be as good as what you get here in the United States. And then the second thing is that I personally believe that my personal data has value. I know it does because these companies want my data. And there, if you'll notice, anytime you fill out some kind of a form to get something for free, they always want your personal data. Right. And I feel like that's fine. If I want to trade my personal information in exchange for a discount coupon or something of that sort, no problem. But I'm getting something in return for the value of my personal information. Right. The right. problem is, you know, a lot of these companies just take the data. They don't ask you if it's okay. They don't offer you anything of value. So I really think there should be a marketplace for this. If marketing companies want this data, it must be valuable to them, then I think that consumers should have a right to get something of value in return. Right. So um, how about opt-in versus opt-out of having them collect information? Should that be available? And, and what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I do think it should be available, although I think it should always be an opt-in. Yeah. Uh, in other words, <laughs> you know, I am opting to allow you to use my data for these purposes and in these ways. Right. And, of course, the reason is that if it's opt-out, the automatic default is they get to have your data and do whatever they want with it. Right. And I know very few people who actually take the steps of contacting the company and saying, please take me out. 
Right. Um, you know, one really well-known example of that is the do not call list. Um, there's a federal do not call list, and then each state, or most of the states anyway, maintain their own do not call list. And that supposedly is a list where you put your phone number on it, and marketers are not allowed to call you for marketing purposes. Um, that was actually a pretty successful effort for a while, but the problem is that the enforcement has not been very good. I know I routinely get calls that I'm not supposed to be getting exactly. <laughs> from marketers um, yes. on my cell phone as well, and that was supposed to be strictly uh, regulated because you had to pay for the airtime. And so the idea was that they really should not be calling you, taking up your time to market you if you didn't want it. Right. So unfortunately, I think those have been um, they've been useful, but marginally useful. And that really is one of the bigger problems, Mari, is that there just hasn't been a lot of enforcement. Um, and I personally think it needs to be done at the federal level just to ensure some uniformity. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the efforts that have been made so far have not really focused very much on broadband or any of these other kinds of uh, devices that we've been talking about today. You know, California has always been really the leader in privacy legislation. We ha- We were the really one of the first states, there were only two states that had Office of Privacy Protection. And, you know, we've had legislation. So I'm kind of surprised that no one has taken up the the banner to do this kind of, you know, legislation. Is there any legislation out there or has there been legislation introduced to deal with the broadband at all? Well, there is. Um, So last year, there was some privacy rules that were put into place by the Federal Communications Commission, but they were not going to take effect until this year. And when the new administration came in, uh, President Trump appointed a new head of the FCC. He was already there, but he became the chairman. That's Ajit Pai. And he immediately proceeded to block those rules from taking effect and then Congress rescinded the rules, and President Trump signed that legislation repeal. So as of now, there's no federal rules that protect broadband privacy. So I think the states are increasingly realizing perhaps they are going to be the last bastion of help on many issues, but privacy being one of them. So about 21 states right now have stepped forward and offered some sort of legislation that would protect your uh, online privacy and in broadband context. Um, that's at different levels, and you know, along the way, the status has kind of uh, faded. But there are two states that have actually gone forward and enacted it, and that's Minnesota and Nevada, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, there is legislation that's been introduced here in California. It's Assembly Bill 375. Um, it right now, it, and what it would do is it would protect your internet privacy when you're using broadband communications. Uh, it would keep an internet service provider, for example, from using or disclosing or selling your personal information unless you do the opt-in consent that we were discussing. Right. And would also, I think very importantly, it would prohibit an ISP from refusing to do business with you if you don't give that consent. I think that's a very important component. Uh, that bill right now is, is still in the committee, and so its future is uncertain this legislative year. But there is at least that effort being made. So are, is that in the – is there still a privacy um, task force in California? I, you know, I haven't been up on that, but I remember there there was – in the Senate, there was a privacy task force that introduced a lot of legislation. 
Who introduced um, AB 375? Um, it's Assemblyman Ed Chow, who's from Monterey Park. Okay. Okay. I just wondered if he was on that Senate uh, Privacy Committee. I, I don't think he is. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good that somebody out is out there doing these kinds of things. So um, what what else can states do? I'm worried about preemption. Like, what, is there an issue with federal preemption keeping states from being allowed to do the kind of legislation that you're talking about to protect consumers? Well, I, I think preemption is probably not my greatest fear because the FCC has made it extremely clear under Chairman Pai that he has no interest in uh, promulgating or even keeping uh, legislation or regulations that exist for privacy protections. And in fact, what he has done is point to the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which is interesting because the Federal Trade Commission is really just an enforcement agency. They do not have rulemaking authority in the way that the FCC does. And the FTC has actually tried uh, in the last couple of years. They have done some, uh, you know, prosecutions and tried to impose penalties on communication providers. Uh, the, the most well-known example probably is that they tried to penalize AT&T Wireless because they were engaging in data throttling that we were referring to earlier, where if a customer reached a certain amount of data usage for the month, they would slow the speeds down. Right. And they didn't disclose that. And so the FTC felt that that was an unfair or deceptive trade practice. And that's really the only thing the FTC has authority to look into. It's not nearly as broad as what the FCC is able to look into. But the, interestingly enough, uh, AT&T appealed that penalty and went to federal court. And the federal court said, well, I don't think the FTC actually has any jurisdiction over communications <laughs> providers. That is vested solely in the FCC. Right. So it was thrown out, essentially. And so I think that's going to be a problem as long as these communication services that we're talking about, whether it's mobile or landline or broadband, as of now, those services are all considered to be um, regulated telecommunication services subject to a section of the Federal Telecom Act called Title II. And Title II is really what allows the FCC to promulgate regulations and engage in rulemaking. Uh, there is an effort, I will tell you, by the FCC to actually remove broadband from Title II authority. So ironically, if it were mm. removed from Title II authority, the FTC probably would have jurisdiction. But again, it's much more limited. It's just enforcement actions looking at unfair or deceptive business practices. And so the problem is, Mari, if an ISP says to you, hey, I'm going to collect all your data, I'm not going to tell you where it's stored, I'm not going to tell you how long I'm going to keep it, and I'm going to market to anybody I can find who wants it, as long as they disclose that to you, that's not an unfair business practice, right? Oh, my god! <laughs> so that's the problem. Wow. So we only have a couple minutes left. After that depressing statement just now, is it, what can we do as consumers? Is there something that we can do? You only have about two minutes to tell me. <laughs> there, there are a couple things. And I think most, mostly what we should do is we should vote with our pocketbooks and our feet. And by that I mean there are uh, companies out there who have voluntarily said they are going to not use your data against your will. They will not collect it and market it and, or disclose it. And I think everyone who is a consumer should ask their provider exactly how are you going to handle my data. 
and they should, through social media and other means, uh, let other people know when they find good vendors out there who actually do worry about privacy, we should patronize those companies and tell them thank you for protecting our privacy. Can you, other- can you tell us a couple companies that have made that promise? It's a value added, actually, right? It's a value. Well, it should be. I, I hate to name any names because, honestly, I'm not sure how sincere they are. Oh, okay. uh, none of this has really <laughs> been tested yet, and that, that will, I think, you know, be the test of time. The other thing that you can do just on a daily basis, if you're doing um, searching on the Internet, um, you know, there's great search engines out there like Google and Yahoo and others like that, who, as far as I know, have not made a commitment to not use your information for marketing purposes. There is one search engine called DuckDuckGo. <laughs> D-U-C-K.G-O. Yeah, D-U-C-K, D-U-C-K-G-O.com. Okay. And if you go to that search engine, uh, they have made a, a commitment that they do not collect cookies, and so they are not monitoring your search patterns and so forth. So if there's something that you feel especially sensitive about, maybe healthcare as an example, uh, you could certainly use a search engine like that. Yeah, that's terrific. Well, thank you so much, um, Anita Taff Rice, who is the founder of ICOMLaw. That's I C O M M L A W. If you could give your website, it's time to go. You're terrific. Yes, the website's just www.icommlaw.com. Okay, well, we'll keep in touch and keep up the great work. Thank you so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at privacypiracy.org. Thanks. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.